I grew up in a college town, and I visited quite a few campuses over the last five years, and one thing that almost all college campuses share in common is that they are perpetual and everlasting construction sites. At Santa Clara University especially, in the last couple years with the construction of Finn Residence Hall and now the new Sobrato STEM campus, construction is having a major impact on the lives of students. In this episode, you're going to hear some of the literally underground secrets of the process of constructing these buildings and how they're going to transform the Santa Clara campus over the next five years. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well. I hope the month of May is off to a great start. I'm your host, Gavin Cosgrave, a junior at Santa Clara University, and today I am speaking with Chris Shea who is the Assistant Vice President of Operations at Santa Clara, a very expansive role that involves planning and projects for environmental health and safety, facilities, parking and transportation, sustainability, housekeeping, archaeology, campus safeties, utility, and business services. So that's a lot, and as you can imagine, Chris goes to a lot of meetings. Uh, He is playing an especially key role in managing the construction process for some of the new projects on campus, including Finn Residence Hall and the Sobrato STEM campus. In this interview, Chris reveals some of the secrets of what goes on underground, um, and he talks about how his role requires looking 4,000 years in the past to preserve the Native American culture that lies beneath Santa Clara's campus, all the way to 4,000 years in the future, talking about the long-term sustainability of the facilities. We talk about how physical spaces impact creativity, the most formational challenge of Chris's career, which happened a couple years ago, and how current construction projects will transform the Santa Clara campus over the next 10 years. Uh, Chris is a really sharp guy, and I had a great time chatting with him, so I think you'll love this interview. Here we go, Chris Shea. I'd love if you could just start out and kind of describe your job and what is a normal day look like? What are some of the types of projects you've been involved with? Absolutely. Kevin, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it greatly. Um, So being in charge of projects here at at a historical college like Santa Clara University comes with its own special weight of being able to do the projects and do them well for um, the campus community as well as the history of the place. So um, we spend an incredible amount of time thinking about how to be able to build, design, plan, construct and then also to open up buildings here on campus so that that part of my job takes up a considerable amount of time i would say so anything from the new residence hall at finn Finn hall which is opening in a few short months to stem which we're just a couple short years away from opening up so we spend a lot of time thinking about what each facility needs and then we think of buildings as kind of being a family of of facilities to tie it together and to make it a campus environment you can have one building that kind of sings all by itself but it's not of the place and that really screws up a whole campus. So a lot of time is making sure all these buildings work well together. Hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess maybe taking one specific project, so maybe either the new, the residence hall around mm-hmm. here, the, the STEM building, like what, like as a, as a student, you just kind of walk by every day, right? And you see, <laughs> you know, one day the buildings are there, the next day they're being torn down, but I'm sure there's so much like planning and work that goes into that. So I guess what are some of the aspects that like students might not 
think about that go into like planning such a huge endeavor like that? Great question. So to build in such a regulated environment as in California, we spend an inordinate amount of time uh, discussing how the buildings themselves will affect the environment. So how do we make sure that the soil doesn't run off into the drains that affects the Guadalupe Creek? for instance. So there's a whole regulatory, for, for very good reasons, for good uh, regulatory industry that you have to be able to comply with to make sure your construction is done such a way that it doesn't impact. Um, the students may have, uh, in, in, um, deal with fences around the construction site. We spend a lot of time thinking about how to make sure the students can get around the fences, get around safely, get to classes, and not, not interact, with, interact with the construction projects. So I think a lot of time is spent on that. One of the areas I was impressed with when I came to Santa Clara about five years ago was how much the students had an input. So we talk about kind of on construction, we want them to stay completely away from it. But on input on what goes on inside, uh, there was a student here, he's graduated now, Patrick Tivoli, I'll never forget his name. Patrick actually influenced the shape of Finn residence. He was the one sitting on a committee that came up with a shape that was given to an architect. The architect and Patrick started working back and forth. This is now three and a half, four years ago. They actually came up with a shape of um, Finn Residence Hall. It was meant to be able to foster a sense of community. So it was improving upon some of our other residence halls, but it was actually student input that was uh, that was that was part of that. And that's something that I don't think every student knows that we include students on these planning for the com committees for uh, the buildings, and that doesn't happen in other places. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and then more about I guess your specific role. Are you kind of choosing the the teams that do? work in different areas or kind of overseeing everyone or is it, that does involve a lot of meetings or kind of what role do you play there? Incredible number of meetings. <laughs> so I think of because my uh, writ here at the university is, is kind of very wide. I go from what I consider to be 4,000 years in the past to 4,000 years in the future. I'm in charge of archaeology all the way through, uh, through this group that works on sustainability. Everybody at the university is in charge of sustainability. But I get to be the one that um, that works on sustainability as part of the university. So we think of archaeology as being when the Ohlone's uh, first settled here, well before that became a mission, 4,000 years in the past. We have to preserve the historical culture of the place and then all the way through sustainability, what were our, our children's 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 inherit? How do we make sure our impact is, is lowered on the campus? So that's kind of the writ. So I move from very widely uh, different types of meetings throughout the day to make sure to deal with those different sections. The area that we're talking about today, kind of that planning and project section, we do spend a lot of time thinking about who will be working on the teams. How do we involve the community from student engagement, faculty engagement, staff engagement? Sometimes we do that fairly well. Other times we have to learn from our mistakes and start again on the next project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, about archaeology, that's it's kind of interesting. So like how how does that relate, for example, with the new STEM campus? Like what what types of things do you have to oh, do related there? Absolutely incredible, incredible history. Um, so building on a campus that is this old, this is the first, some of the first places the Ohlone's landed. Of course, it's the mission. So it's the first place that some of the missionaries arrived as well, thousands of years later. So the soil underneath the campus is just replete with an incredible archaeological history. So every layer has some interesting story to tell. So on the Franklin block, where the Franklin Street comes through in front of Dowd, we found an incredible amount of Native American uh, um, items, artifacts, missionary mission period artifacts as well that starts to tell the story of the economy, what things were traded, what things came from the coast, what came, things came from Mexico what things were snuck in through blockade from England. So some really interesting things uh, that got played out in that archaeology. 
On the STEM site, what we're finding is an incredible amount of history associated with what they call the Everhart Tannery. So the first tannery of the mission was located on the STEM site. So where they took the, the hides from the cows and were able to make goods and products. When the German um, ancestors came in, or the German folk, the folks came in to be able to live in the valley, they created what they call Everhart Tannery on the same site. And we found a replete history of what's happened at the, the tannery as well. So the engineering buildings were actually built on the history of a tannery, which was built on the history of another tannery. And now we're the fourth generation will be building STEM on the history of the engineering quad, which is built on the tannery, German tannery, which was then built on the mission tannery. So hmm. peeling back each layer is important to know the history before we can go on and build the new buildings. We spend a lot of time on archaeology. Mm -hmm. And is that mostly like documenting? before or i'm sure there's all kinds of regulations as well. exactly and this is where because my writ is so large i go from one end to the other i'm in uh, neither an expert in any one of the areas that i get yeah. to oversee but we do have experts on campus that can go through and very in a very statistical and focused measure go through and take the information that's necessary areas that we can keep um, historically safe we do and then other areas where the building has to go and the footprint the steel and the columns have to come through we slowly peel back the history and we document every bit and then we release that in a form of research um, materials for other researchers to build build the stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe jumping forward to the sustainability part in the future, I guess, how do you think about either on one hand, maybe just like complying with regulations versus like being cutting edge in terms of sustainability? So the uh, an incredibly good question. So we spend a lot of time on very big commitments that have been made by our forefathers. Um, the Father Locatelli and Father Ang have set the gauntlet very high for what our commitments will be for our carbon neutrality, for being able to take take a, take the carbon out of our energy system. So we do spend a lot of time on these big picture items of how do we get to that location um, at the, in, into the future in a very short time frame in the future. But then we also want to be able to make investments because this is university funds that eventually come from philanthropy and students, student tuition dollars. So we want to be very judicious in the selection of technology we choose to get there. So uh, if you are too far cutting edge, you can waste a lot of dollars and you can get ineffective projects that don't get you to your goals. And so we spend a lot of time balancing those two decisions on how best to be able to get to get to our goal. And that goal is coming up very soon. We have, uh, you know, we're going to be trying to get to carbon neutrality in a very short order of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What will the new maybe the new residence hall or the new STEM building like? Are there mm -hmm. any interesting features of those that make them? maybe more sustainable than current buildings. Absolutely. So um, interestingly, interestingly, um, laboratory buildings, they look similar to other buildings, but the energy consumption is massive in our, in our laboratory buildings. So if we are able to save some energy in Finn Residence Hall, that's great. And we have, we put some new uh, technologies in there to be able to get, to pull out as much of the energy as we can consumption. But if we put the commiserate amount of time into the Sobrato campus, then the energy reduction is ninefold. So for mm -hmm. the a quick quick comparison, one square footage of space in a laboratory is worth nine square feet in a house of energy consumption. It, labs are actually twice as energy demanding as mm -hmm. hospitals. So, mm -hmm. so when we spend a lot of time on the mechanical systems, it's not very exciting. But if you peel back the mechanics of the uh, of the STEM building, very much cutting edge energy consumption mm -hmm. reduction strategies and technologies. Yeah, yeah, interesting. A lot of students care a lot about their their carbon footprint right, and being sustainable, but I'm sure that the the effect of a building is probably much much larger than any individual, right? So it's it's interesting to learn that you're 
thinking so deeply about that type of stuff. So I think it's a combination. I think every decision the students make individually contributes because it's a mm -hmm. contributive model and you know we all have to make those together. And then these students that are here today will be leaders in the very near future and then they get to make larger and larger decisions. So hopefully they're they're coming away with, you know, my small decisions today compounded with all my compatriots make a difference mm -hmm. and then soon I'll be in a leadership position and I'll have to make these you know these very difficult decisions about whether you invest or whether you don't invest and what do you invest in mm -hmm. yeah with with these kind of sticking with these two projects maybe the residence hall or the stem building like have there been any I guess like challenging moments in the process or times where you feel like you've learned something new or grown in in some way I think the the most interesting challenge has been the the conversation associated with the the goal of the Sobrato campus mm -hmm. is being able to pull together engineers and scientists and mathematicians and pull them into a community. Um, a lot of people that do research and teaching do different things, so they have to have spaces that reflect what they need to do. And so bringing those together into one facility mm -hmm. is challenging, but it's one of the challenging that, that offers the most benefit, because if you can bring them together, they can spend time together, they can be able to think about their problems that they think of separately together. Mm -hmm. The hope is that they can come away with different solutions that you know nobody's thinking of today. But just bringing the physicality of those two groups together has been a, it's been a challenge, and it's been a wonderful experience as well. And I've learned an incredible amount mm -hmm. about the institution through the process. Yeah, yeah, I know that what they do, all kinds of studies on office buildings and how the different layouts affect the like creativity of teams and stuff like that. So yeah, like is that is it, how much do you think about like the layout in terms of like are you having those types of conversations? I guess continuously, so, continuously. Mm -hmm. It's a, a one of my areas that I geek out on the most <laughs> is being able to create a facility and a building mm -hmm. that creates those kind of spontaneous connections between people and students. So when the students do move in, and we're trying to get this done by fall of 21, so that that class can get the full use of the building. So we're racing incredibly quickly by building standard time to be able to open the facility. What they'll find when they get there is their collaboration space, which is now modeled in Hefeberg, and we have very large collaboration spaces the students have just kind of camped out in, which has been wonderful to see. That's a model of what's coming in the Sobrato campus. Mm -hmm. And we specifically put that space near the large oversized stairs, what we call stair five, which is at the center of the building between their labs where they'll be doing research and uh, taking classes mm -hmm. as in, in their faculty offices. So the idea is that their collaboration space where they're meant to be able to sit and enjoy and be able to study, the faculty will actually have to walk past them and see them. Mm -hmm. And so the spontaneous collaboration not only goes between researchers discussing a topic, we also want students to benefit from that as well. Mm -hmm. So their position to be able to grab a faculty, pull them aside, have a conversation about a test or a research opportunity or a grant that they want to write. So it's all it's all that comes together into one one building. Yeah, yeah, that's that's so interesting. And like even you mentioned observing students in the new Hefe building. Like I feel like part of that is even subconscious, right? Of where you know, if you walk into the library and look for an open space, then maybe, you know, your mind is like, oh, I need to be quiet. I need to go over here. So that it's interesting that you, you know, that maybe people act and or you, you can affect the way people act just by your your layout. Um, and that they might not even realize that it's, not, it's affecting them. Yeah, not, not the two projects we're talking about. But when we opened Benson this summer, which was an incredibly fast paced project, we were mm -hmm. actually... Um, doing the last of the construction as the students were coming in to eat. So, I mean, it was down to the absolute wire, right. but the wonderful thing we thought about Benson when we spent this time is the library is an incredible asset. It won Library of the Year because of the great staff and programs as well as that wonderful building. 
but the opportunity to be able to have more quiet space for the students in the library and then have Benson open 23 hours a day. So the idea is that Benson, we take down the walls, the student can own it for 23 hours out of the day, mm -hmm. and they can have more of the lively conversations. If you have a group that loves to be able to interact, talk, they can be able to go into Benson and use that, or they get the same choice if they want to be a little more quiet and the loud groups have decamped to Benson. So the idea is to give students more choices in that, that manner. Yeah, yeah, so. totally. Um, you mentioned uh, before the interview that there was a event a couple years ago that was pretty challenging and uh, um, you, you learned a lot from. So yeah, what was that kind of exciting moment in the last couple of years? Sure, sure. Respond? <laughs> <laughs> I think for the, the students who are here at the time, the meningitis crisis mm -hmm. was a uh, was one of the most formative of my career um, and I've been doing this now for 25 years but it was one of the most formative of my careers and I think for the folks that were here it was also a really um, interesting galvanizing moment for everybody that was here students faculty staff alike it was a uh, situation where on a Sunday I was sitting at home and I got a call from our emergency manager that they thought they had a case of meningitis mm -hmm. um, and from that moment at 235 on a, a Sunday afternoon we were in touch with the CDC, we were in touch with the state of California, and the county of Santa Clara specifically really stepped up. We referred to them coming in as kind of the white knights coming in to be able to help us. But um, that from that moment till Wednesday afternoon, Thursday morning, we opened up a clinic for all 5,400 students in a size comparison. UC Santa Barbara took seven months to get to the same spot that we took about 48 hours. It was just amazing. So we opened up a clinic. We brought in the doctors and nurses to be able to give the inoculation. We had to organize all the logistics surrounding this of bringing the students through, making sure they were fed, entertained. They came through Levy, sat, every single student sat in Levy. Our colleagues at University Relations actually put together a campaign to thank the students and then really to be able to tell their parents they got the shot. <laughs> but we got through almost every single student in a very short period of time mm. while still holding a concert for the Super Bowl on the same week. Oh, so wow. it was an amazing, amazing week. It was one of the, I've never, don't think I've ever been that tired. But the thing that was most amazing, I talk about it galvanizing the, the community and, and my own involvement in it, it really truly was a community involvement, a community effort all the way from beginning to end. We had vice presidents that were handing out stickers to students at the end. We had people that were jumping in the front of line to organize students. We had students that were organizing students. Mm -hmm. It really was an amazing, amazing, I would say solid week. Um, and mm -hmm. We had follow on activities after that, but I, it was one of the things that I truly look back upon with great pride to be part of the community. Yeah, yeah, totally. Like what types of what types of like I guess actions were you taking or role did you kind of have during some of those critical days? Sure, sure. So, so one of the things that in a sense in a time of uh, stasis in a university, I think everybody knows the usual uh, pattern of who's in charge and who's not in charge. Student, if you have an issue within uh, within the un university, you go to your student government. If you're on staff, you go to staff senate. If you're faculty, you go to faculty senate where you talk to your bosses or supervisors. Mm -hmm. What very few people know that in an emergency that we have a, a completely different structure that's built around a, um, a kind of a military command and control structure. It's meant to respond to the emergency in a very timely manner and then put the university back into operations as it usually is. So it's not a takeover and takeover forever thing, but it's to be able to hold the fort, fix the issues that are going on and then send it back. And so the emergency operations center is the entity that runs those emergency operations. And that's what I was in charge of for the meningitis for that mm. during that period of time. So. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then I guess I'm, I'm just curious how you kind of discovered this line of work, that it was something you enjoyed so much and maybe a couple of the key moments along your career path that led you to this point. That takes me way back in time. <laughs> if, if you allow me to go that far back, uh, one of the things I, I, I remember, one of my first memories as a child hmm. was wanting to be coming home in kind, not kindergarten, even pre-kindergarten and telling my mother I wanted to be in construction and a police officer. And she said, well, you'll have to choose. And so here I am 45 years later and I just never had to choose. So <laughs> being in charge of campus safety as well as the construction and planning facilities, it's just an opportunity to do really neat things to be able to serve serve a community. So hmm. I always say to our to our faculty members and our staff and our students that we're not in the build, business of building buildings, we're in the business of supporting programs. So anything we do needs to be able in that light. So we're not gonna build the Sobrato campus if it doesn't help make those programs better for what they do. So we spend a lot of time thinking about service, the same thing that we teach our students, we, we compel our faculty or our staff to be able to think about as well. Mm -hmm. did, did you have a clear idea of what your career would look like when you were in college? Oh, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. I trained as a civil engineer. Mm -hmm. um, I, I had assumed that I would be going on to work in factories in the Midwest, in Detroit, in that area, in the car industry. Mm -hmm. And very quickly, I fell in love and somebody said, hey, look, I want to travel the world. So we've mm -hmm. traveled and worked in two different countries uh, in addition to the United States and just mm -hmm. been all over the place. And she fell in love with California, so I fell in love with California. Mm -hmm. We found our way back and worked at another university and then was recruited down here to, to work at Santa Clara. Yeah, what was that experience? Was it was it Vietnam? Vietnam, yes. Yeah. yeah, what was it like being so, there? So we uh, lived in Thailand for a while um, mm -hmm. when I was in graduate school and then went to Vietnam after that is okay. when I was a professional. So it was... Vietnam was amazing. The time and place was spectacular. Um, it, the economy seemed to be doubling every year, and they were becoming a middle-class society right before your own eyes. And the, mm. the size of the big cities were in Asia were getting larger by the day. So it was very interesting. Um, of course, with our history with the nation of Vietnam as well, and, and living learning about that was very interesting as well. So I mm. would, a formidable, formidable period of time, short but formidable. Yeah, and what, what were you doing for your career at that point? Very similar. So I was a foreign service officer, but I was in charge of operations there as well. So mm -hmm. I was in charge of uh, travel and housing and motor pool and all the things that make the trains go on time. So when I talk here about what do I do, it's like make the trains run on time. And that's what I did in Vietnam as well. But just mm -hmm. thousands of miles from home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. What are the moments, I guess, of your job that you enjoy most now? I really, truly, when I was here about a week, so at the other university I worked at, yeah. I did a lot of research labs for medical medical faculty. Mm -hmm. And I think in the time I was there, and I was aggregate, I was there about 12 years, 11 to 12 years. Mm -hmm. And I think I met one undergraduate. And when mm -hmm. I came to Santa Clara mm -hmm. University on the second week, I was brought in by the person that had my position before, an incredible man, Joe Sugg. Um, he said, you're going to go meet the students. So I thought, well, this is fantastic. He said, be ready by seven. I'll pick you up at home. And he brought me in front of ASG, the, the Senate, the student Senate, by seven o'clock, a week and a half into my job. And I thought, this is fantastic. We're already answering great questions by our students in a, a forum like this. And I thought, this is something I, I really responded to. So I think the student engagement has been the best, mm. the best part. Yeah, yeah. And right now it's obvious for any student to see just how much construction is happening, right? Even if I compare it to my first year a couple of years ago, it's 
you know, it's, it's really everywhere, right? So I guess what, what is the campus going to look like in a couple of years or what are some of the big changes that are underway? So I think the, uh, the campus fabric itself will look very similar to what they've seen and what they've inherited. So they've, mm-hmm. what they've come in, if they've talked to their brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers that may have been Broncos before them, they'll hear about the Alameda being a street or mm-hmm. the Abbey Serrato Mall being a street with parking on that and things of that nature. So the, over time, there's been changes that the current students have benefited from that have kind of get, will give an indication of what the future will look like mm-hmm. in the way the campus looks. I think everybody is going to be very stunned when Sobrato campus, the Sobrato campus for Discovery Innovation opens because inside those facilities will be state-of-the-art and they will be absolutely gorgeous and there'll be phenomenal new tools that we don't have today. So mm-hmm. on the outside, people will be very comfortable that this is their campus. On the inside of the Sobrato campus, I think people will be very challenged by the fact that there's new facilities we have to use and utilize and get the most of. So student opportunities will increase, I think, mm-hmm. once the building, once the Sobrato campus is done. It'll, it's not unlike what happened with the, uh, with the Benson Center. Benson Center still serves food, still has an opportunity for students to be able to work in there. But I think everybody saw this last summer that the the, the whole tone of it changed. And that will be times 100 with the Sobrato campus mm. for the student experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, br- briefly, I'm, I'm not sure uh, what your role in this is, but um, you are supposedly trying to get BART on the sure, campus. Is that, is that true? And absolutely. What is involved with that? It, it is a long-term, uh, long-term <laughs> effort. So we think of buildings in the terms of the 2020 plan, I think, started in 2013. And mm-hmm. we're just closing in on the last few buildings. You've seen the fences go up and we're just building the last of the, the 2020 plan. So that's a seven-year time frame. BART has been discussing coming to the South Bay since 1971. I mean, it's been a long, long, long stretch. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, the VTA and the, the, the political entities of the city of San Jose, Santa Clara, have really worked together. Mm-hmm to be able to bring BART to the South Bay. And it, they are just starting the effort to be able to start um, doing a lot of the uh, destructive testing to be able to see how the, the bores will be designed and be able to bring it to the campus. So we're gonna see a little bit of an uptick over the next year, two years, and then the construction will really start to be able to bring it down. But it, it, if it's not inevitable, it's certainly much, much more likely. And the really neat thing for Santa Clara University is BART will terminate at our campus. It'll be Mm. physically at the Caltrain station. So you'll be able to hop on BART, go throughout downtown San Jose, go all the way through the east side, all the way to Fremont, get to Berkeley on BART from here without Mm. stopping. And then if you circle the whole bay, you can know it'll get back. And then a side note, but just as important, is Caltrain is electrifying, which will mean cleaner service. There'll be Mm. no more diesel and then more service for Santa Clara as well. So between those two things, we'll go from being kind of a slow train station to mm-hmm. much more opportunities for faculty and staff to, to be able to commute here. So And so we hope by about 2028 on having, that was two more generations of, of Broncos uh, for BART and then, um, and then for electrified Caltrain, I think it's in the next two to three years. And so that'll be much sooner. Yeah. Wow, awesome. It's an, it's an exciting time. Yeah, sure. and, and I think the other thing that, that everybody should watch is around the BART station. If you've seen any other BART station, what starts to occur is there's a lot of very neat development that occurs. Mm. The campus will always be a very much a safe place to be, um, a park-like in nature, but everything that is east of us, you'll start to see a lot more towers and interesting things. And with towers comes restaurants and bars and entertainment and things like that. So mm-hmm. I think one of the things, we have an incredible enclosed campus here, but we do know that we need to bring things for our students to be able to do on the outside. So I'm hopeful that BART will spur a lot of that development for the mm. next generation. 
Yeah. Awesome. Well, there's a couple of questions I like to ask at the end of interviews. So Sure. Yeah. So maybe first of all, and you, you mentioned some about Vietnam, but are there any favorite places that you've traveled? Oh, wow. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great one. Um, so one of the places that I, I just love is um, in Dalat in Vietnam, uh, Sapa in Vietnam, two different places in Vietnam, one's in the south and one's in the north. They're just phenomenal places, both mountainous in, in terrain. And then um, those are yeah two places I, I really love the people and the culture and the and the, and the just the, the vibe of the places. If mm. you have an opportunity, to be those are two great places to mm. see. Yeah, yeah. I guess since you deal so much with the physical buildings, are there any either like general cities or specific buildings that you really love being in, or around, or looking at? So I'm partial. I am partial to uh, places in, in France. There's a particular city that brings together what I love the best, and I think it's reflective of this area as well, where you have the ocean next to interesting cities. So, Saint Malo, France, is there's a castle that comes right up to the edge of the ocean, and it's one of those things where it's almost like medieval France meets the ocean and, and the the wide open sea, and it's it's got a very much a feeling of. of the Bay Area as well. So I, even traveling, I, I enjoy coming home to the Bay Area, but even seeing things that look like the Bay Area. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, what advice would you give to a first-year student starting out at Santa Clara? I think there's a lot of people that tell you, um, be careful of what you get into and be careful of what you volunteer for. But I found that the reason that I think I'm probably in this position today is I've thrown up my arm more times than I count. I can count, got myself in a lot of trouble for doing it. But just volunteering, saying, I'll do that. Even if you don't feel like you're qualified, throw up your arm and say, I can do that. It does two things. One, it gets you into situations you might not have had an opportunity to get into. And, and Santa Clara is full of those opportunities. So the second thing is, even if you're not selected the first time, it sends a signal to everybody around you that you're interested in that. You're interested in opportunities. And the next time things, opportunities come up, and they always do, they go back and they look for people that volunteered. So I'd say throw up your arm, get involved with things, volunteer. And even if you get yourself in trouble, you can always recover and even studying more or do something mm -hmm. else, but just volunteer. Yeah, yeah. And on a larger scale, if you could send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? Wow, that's a <laughs> that's a big question. <laughs> I, I would I I don't know if I have great advice for the entire country of 400 million. It is such a wide and uh, it's such a wide and wonderful place mm -hmm. that I would trade in the opportunity to give a a dictate to every single person in the country for an opportunity to have a conversation with every person mm -hmm. in the country because there's such a wide variety of interesting people that I'd love to talk with everyone. Mm -hmm. All for, all 400 million. Cool, cool. Yeah. That's a that's an interesting response. I haven't heard that <laughs> one yet. Um, and finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? No calls about meningitis. <laughs> I think that's, that's number one. <laughs> I, I spend a lot of time with my daughter, Isabel. She plays volleyball now, so we spend an inordinate amount of time following her volleyball career, mm -hmm. the ups and downs that come with, uh, with a great uh, seventh-grade athlete. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for doing this interview. I absolutely I appreciate it. Kevin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you much for your time. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can go to VoicesOfSantaClara.com to read a partial transcript of this episode, follow on Twitter at VoicesOfSCU, or leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. I'll see you next time.